Amen. I'm going to let you be seated. I'm not going to read my text all up front. I'm just going to uh, go through it verse by verse. But we are in our fourth lesson from the book of Ruth, a biography, if you will, of Ruth, where we have started our journey way back in Moab, and, and we've brought Ruth and Naomi back to Bethlehem. And we concluded last week with them arriving at Bethlehem. Naomi, who went out full, has returned empty. But they've come back at the season of the barley harvest. We talked about how that God brought them back in a season of harvest, a time of plenty and provision. That's where we're going to pick up the story this morning in Ruth chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. So the first verse of today's passage introduces a new character into the story. And we learn four important details about him. First of all, he is a kinsman of Naomi's husband. Now that's a significant point. It's something that the Jewish reader would pick up on a whole lot easier than you and I would pick up on because a Jewish reader would recognize immediately that this character now qualifies to fulfill the Leviterate law that we talked about in the very first week or so when, when Naomi was trying to get her daughters-in-law to turn back and go back to Moab. And she said, you'll never be able to find a husband because the law says it has to be a kinsman. And I haven't had any other children and there's there's no one else that you could marry and so uh, there, there's no uh, no hope for you but now we introduce into this character this story a character that that's the first glimmer of hope for Ruth uh, hope that in spite of Naomi's insistence uh, that there would never be another marriage uh, for Ruth uh, that it may still be a possibility here is a man who is related to her husband who is able to fulfill the law the next thing we learn about this man is that he is a mighty man of wealth. He's a, he's a man of substance. He's a man that uh, this isn't just any ordinary run-of-the-mill Israelite. He's a landowner, amen. He has some standing in the community. He's got some wealth, uh, amen. He's able to provide. The third thing that we learn is really a clarification of the first we learn that he is of the family of Elimelech, that is, Naomi's husband, Ruth's deceased father-in-law. And then finally, we learn his name. His name is Boaz. Interestingly enough, the meaning of his name is unclear. It's an incomplete phrase. Perhaps it is a simplification of a larger name, kind of like we may shorten Benjamin to Ben. And so we don't know exactly what Boaz means because it's just a fragment. But uh, the, the, the Bible scholars tell me that most likely it's a fragment of a name that means I will trust in the strength of the Lord. That word Boaz draws from the word strength. And so something about strength and the Lord is what his name means. So here's a man who is, he's a kinsman, he's wealthy, he has means, and he 
trust in the Lord. Amen. Verse 2 says, And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. So finally, the emphasis of the story shifts. Up until now, we've been more focused on Naomi, but this is Ruth's story. And my wife told me last week, I said, well, how are you enjoying this? She said, well, you know, uh, I'm enjoying it, but I'm getting a little tired of hearing about Naomi. This is supposed to be about Ruth. Amen. Uh, this is the point in the story where the roles switch, uh, and it gets to be about Ruth. I'll go home today with a happy wife. Amen. <laughs> Happy wife, happy life. Praise the Lord. And so for the first time in the book, we see Ruth emerging as the primary actor. It's also interesting to note that the narrator identifies Ruth again as a Moabitess. Now, it's not necessary to continually repeat that phrase. The beginning of the story has made it very apparent to us. Ruth is a foreigner. She's a stranger. She's a Moabitess. She doesn't have any claim on the promises of Bethlehem or the people of God. Amen. She's different. She's a stranger. And we don't need to be told that over and over again. We got that at the beginning. But the narrator of the story is using that repetition, uh, the repetition of her foreignness, of her being an alien in a, in a distant country, to keep Ruth's background at the forefront of the story. It's a literary device that's intended to increase our sense of wonder and awe as the story unfolds. Not only is God going to do the miraculous, but he's going to do it for somebody who isn't even one of his people. Uh, amen. They come out of the land of Moab. Uh, and so we're going to keep being told over and over she's a Moabite. Uh, amen. She, she's not from Israel. She doesn't have the covenant of Abraham to lean on, but she has put her faith in God, and God is going to provide for her. In this opening scene of the narrative about Ruth, we find her requesting permission of Naomi that she might go out into the fields and gather them some food. It's likely that the narrator includes this because he wants us to catch a glimpse of the lovely character of Ruth. The situation is desperate. Naomi went out full, but she has come back again empty, and their only hope of survival lies in Ruth's ability to go glean in the barley harvest. Uh, that, that harvest is presently taking place. So uh, it's, a, it's a natural thing. It's what she's going to do. But instead of just taking it on herself to go do it, Ruth comes to her mother-in-law and asks permission to go glean in the field. Now, there's no need to ask. It's a no-brainer. Either she goes to the field or they starve. But there's the character of Ruth that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate love and respect for my mother-in-law, Naomi, this one that she has clung to, this one that she has said, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever your, whoever your people are, they're going to be my people. Whoever your God is, he'll be my God. Wherever they bury you, that's where I'm going to be buried. That, that devotion that she has for Naomi now shows up in this politeness, this, this asking of permission. Now, at this point in the story, we need to be clear what it is that Ruth is asking for. She is proposing to go to the barley fields 
as a gleaner. Now, a gleaner is different than a harvester. A gleaner collects the scraps that the harvesters have accidentally dropped or missed as they harvested the field. She'll not be a reaper. She doesn't get to get up there where the grain is. She doesn't get to get up there where the abundance is. She will be following along behind the reapers, picking up the stalks of grain that have fallen to the ground, that, that they have missed or perhaps that they've left standing. Gleaning is humble work. It, it's, not a, it's not something you can do with a, a lot of pride or arrogance. It's the acknowledgement of the fact that you're in a poor situation. You're lowly. Amen. You, 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 you're, you're in need. If you go to glean, uh, amen, it's going to that place where you're relying on the charity of others to support you. Amen. It's an humbling situation. But Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 33 said, Before honor is humility. So it was with Ruth, even as she humbled herself to go to the field and glean, she opened the door for God to exalt her, to lift her to a place of honor. Had she not been humble enough to go glean in the field, she would likely never have caught Boaz's attention, and we wouldn't be talking today about a young lady named Ruth. That the Mosaic Law had built into it a means of providing charity. Today, we our government pretty well fulfills this function with welfare and different ways of, of supporting those who are in need. But in, in that day and age, the way that it was written into the law of God that foreigners, orphans, widows, and those that were just plain poor were to be provided for by the owners of the field. The law demanded that the harvesters deliberately leave grain in the corners of the fields. In other words, they, they plant the whole field, but you don't reap the whole field. You leave the corners standing so the gleaners will have something to glean. Amen. It's also commanded, Brother Donnie, as they're picking that grain and they're getting those stalks of, of barley, that if they accidentally drop one, whatever falls to the ground belongs to the gleaners. They're not allowed to go pick it back up again. So they go through with a knife, they cut the stalks, and then there's a, there's a, they stop and they gather them, tie them into a bundle. And it's in that gathering process that sometimes the, these stalks of grain would fall to the ground. But they're forbidden from picking them back up. If you drop it, it belongs to the gleaners. Amen? Now, Ruth qualified to be a gleaner because she was indeed a foreigner. She was indeed a widow. And she was destitute or poor. So she, she more than qualified to work as a gleaner. But in those days, the days of the judges, when we said this in the first week, uh, it was a time period where not everyone was compliant to the law of Moses. Some landowners didn't participate in this charity program. They harvested everything they could from the field. They took the corners. If you dropped the grain, you, you picked it back up again. You got the most that you could out of your field. And some of them simply would not tolerate gleaners at all in their fields. It was trespassing, if you will. So Ruth appears to be aware of that. She recognizes in the latter half of this verse that she's going to have to find grace in the eyes of a landowner in order to be able to glean the field. Incidentally, the, the King James Version 
confuses the story in this verse. And if we're reading it from our English perspective, we get a little lost because it refers to the heads of barley as ears of corn. Now that designation, ears of corn, made sense in the different time and place where barley grain was referred to as an ear of corn. But when you and I read it, we think that it's, the story has now jumped from fields of barley to fields of sweet corn. Amen? Because that's what we get in our mind when we hear ears of corn. But that's not what he's talking about. The, the ears of corn are the, the head of the barley, much like the head of wheat. And when it comes up to a head, that's the part that you harvest. And so uh, when she goes to the field, she's going to harvest this barley grain, not corn. Amen? The key here, though, is not the corn. It's not uh, the, the, the fact that she's going to the field or asking permission. The real key to this verse is the word grace. I shall find grace. It's that word that introduces really the context of this story. This story is not about Ruth pulling herself up by her bootstraps. This story is not about Ruth uh, making her way in the world from her abundance of ability and provision. This story is about the grace of God. It's about God who, who loves Ruth, a Moabite, enough to bring her not just into his family, but into the very lineage of King David and the ultimately the lineage of Jesus Christ. That's the grace of God at work. Amen? Verse 3 says, And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. So Ruth went to the fields that were being harvested in order to glean. Now that sounds like the obvious thing to do. But spiritually, many people are not that wise. They're looking for spiritual food in all the wrong places. If you need food, you got to go where food is. Amen? If you want to glean, you have to go where the barley is being harvested. Uh, and if your soul is weary and in need of refreshing, you go to the house of God. Amen? That's where the refreshing is. That's where the blessing of God is being poured out. That's where that corporate worship is taking place. Uh, all too many times, folks stay away from church. They stay home from church because they're weary and they're tired. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, Pastor, I just need to work some things out. When I get some things worked out, uh, I'll be back to the house of God. My friend, that's looking for food in all the wrong places. What you need uh, when you need strength, when you need encouragement, when you need direction, when you need blessing, when you need to be lifted up, when you need something poured into your empty soul, uh, it only makes sense uh, to go to the field where the harvest is happening. Uh, it only makes sense to go to the house of God uh, where the grace of God is at work, where a man of God can speak life and hope uh, and encouragement into your soul, where the fellowship of the people of God can lift you up and strengthen you and encourage you. If you want food, you got to go where food is found. Amen? The Hebrew word translated in this verse is hap and hap is not even a word we use anymore we're you got to understand the king james version of the bible was translated in shakespearean english have you ever read hamlet that's the kind of english the bible's in so 
this word hap goes from all the way back to Hamlet and, and, and Romeo and Juliet. It's a word that doesn't even make sense to us. But the Hebrew word behind it is found ten times in the Old Testament. And every time that it appears, it refers to the miraculous provision of God. It's a word that's often translated as denoting luck or chance. That word hap is a shortening of the word happenstance. It's, it's a chance thing. It's a, it's a luck thing. But what the world calls luck and what the world calls chance and what the world calls happenstance uh, is often the divine hand of God providing uh, and working in our lives. Uh, it looked like it happened by chance, uh, but he who orders your footsteps, uh, he who defines the way that you walk, uh, he who puts blessings in your path, uh, he brought you to this place. And the narrator knows that, and he's used this word to draw attention to the wonder of what is about to transpire. Perhaps it's with a twinkle in his eyes as he inquires of his readers, what are the chances? She just happens to end up in the field that belongs to Boaz. What, what are the chances? What are the odds that this little Hebrew girl, uh, amen, that, that doesn't know anything or anybody, uh, amen, walks out of Naomi's place where she is uh, and goes to the field uh, and ends up in the field of the only person in Bethlehem who can redeem her. What are the chances? It's a subtle way of drawing the reader's attention to the hand of God at work uh, in the story. The same hand that sent the famine into Moab. The same hand that later provided food for them. That same hand, uh, amen, that, that brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem. That same hand uh, that brought them there at precisely the beginning uh, of the barley harvest. That hand uh, has now guided Ruth uh, to a field that belongs to Boaz. What are the chances? She who has no idea who Boaz is would randomly end up in the field of the only person who can save her out of her distress. I come to tell somebody in this place on a Sunday morning, God knows exactly where you are. He knows precisely what you need, and he is more than capable of guiding your footsteps. He's more than capable of bringing you to the right place at the right time. Uh, to others, it's going to look like chance. Uh, to others, it's going to look like a lucky stroke. Uh, to others, it's going to look like the stars just aligned. Uh, but you're going to know in your heart uh, that my God uh, who watches over me, uh, the one who provides for me and blesses me. He has brought me to this place. Amen. Walk by faith. Know that he is your provider. He's the one who makes a way when there seems to be no way. Verse 4 says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Now it's Boaz's turn to be guided by God. He just so happens, just by chance, to come to the field to check on his laborers when Ruth is among the gleaners. And we get some critical insight here into the spirit of Boaz. He greets his workers with a traditional Jewish form of greeting that invokes the name of God. That's significant because in this period of the judges, 
there's a there's a general degradation across the nation of Israel. People aren't honoring God the way they should honor God. And it's not necessarily the most common thing in the world for a man to be holding to the traditions, holding to the, the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to step into the field and, and bless his servants and receive that same blessing back from them, That the, the counterpart to that blessing. Amen. They spoke back to him, the Lord bless thee also. Amen. So in spite of the, 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 the condition of the day, in spite of the fact that a whole nation had turned his back on God and every man was doing what seemed right in his own eyes, the first words we hear from Boaz in this story, honor God. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Verse 5 says, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, speaking of this is what, Naomi, what Ruth said to the servant, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. So it didn't take Boaz long to notice that there was an attractive young woman in his field among the gleaners that he'd never seen before. She wasn't from around here. Amen. She she wasn't anything that was familiar to him as she caught his eye. So he turned to the servant that is over the reapers and he asked him something along these lines. Who does she belong to? Now, this is where we catch a glimpse of Boaz's first impression of Ruth. First of all, he, he, he speaks of her as a young lady. She's, she's young, and, and perhaps the, the point here is to show that even though the story has introduced Ruth as a, as a widow, she's still young enough and vibrant enough that Boaz, when he sees her, sees a young lady. Amen. He sees somebody who's attractive. But even, even more important, Boaz assumes that at the very least, she's been spoken for. Whose is she? It's a question that seems to arise from more than an idle curiosity about who's the new girl in my field. Amen. It's a question that seems to be saying, wow, who's the lucky guy? Who does she belong to? Who's laid claim to her? Many commentators believe that this particular exchange in this book is, is put there in order to reveal to us that for Boaz, this is love at first sight. He's laid his eyes on her and he's realized I, I, there's a desire there. Amen. There's, there's something there. I want to get to know her better. I, I, I wanna, I'd love to be a part of her life. Who, who's a lucky guy? Who is it that has gotten her attention? And so he's immediately drawn to Ruth so much so that his first question revolves around her availability. More than who is she, he wants to know whose is she. By way of answering the question, the servant tells Boaz that if she belongs to anyone, she is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. I guess she belongs to Naomi. It is interesting, though, how the young man describes Ruth. Rather than calling her a Moabitess, which is what we've seen over and over again in this, in this book, he calls her Moabite-ish. 
that subtle change in the description denotes the fact that perhaps that young man views her as somewhat more familiar and less of a stranger. Less than a Moabite, she's just kind of a foreigner. She's, she's, after all, she's come to Bethlehem with Naomi. After all, she's put her faith and trust in God. After all, she's, she's, she's here among the people of God, gleaning in the field with them. He says she's just kind of Moabitish. She's just, she just a little bit Moabite. Amen? Then the supervisor reports an earlier conversation that he had with Ruth. She had asked him whether she could glean among the sheaves behind the harvesters. Once again, we see the character of Ruth. She, she didn't just presume that the law says I can glean in the field, so I'm going to go glean in the field. Evidently, she went to the caretaker, the, 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 the guy who's over it all, the one who's watching over the field, the foreman, if you will, and, and she goes to him and asks for permission to go work in the field, to glean the harvest. And apparently, he didn't tell her no. He says she's been here all day, working from this moment, from this morning to this moment, without even much of a break. He says she, she tarried a little while. She, she took a, a short rest in the shade of a makeshift shelter, but she's been hard at work all day long. Having gathered this information from the servant, Boaz now goes and addresses Ruth herself. Now, this is the first glimpse we get of the grace of God that's about to unfold in Ruth's life. I'm going to cover two more scriptures. We'll pick the story back up next Sunday. But verse 8 says, Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field. Neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go into the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Boaz refers to Ruth, first of all, as my daughter. Translators agree that this is indication from Boaz to Ruth that he recognizes she's younger than he is. Amen. And that expression is not intended to be patronizing, but it reflects the age difference. And it arises out of a genuine sense of responsibility that Boaz feels for Ruth. He wants to, he wants to be her provider. He wants to take care of her. It, it, it's, a, it's almost a fatherly, nurturing type of, of address that he makes to her. Despite the fact that she is a Moabite, despite the fact that she's a stranger and a foreigner, he feels compelled to offer her his protection, and his resources. The greeting indicates from the very beginning of the conversation that Ruth has already found favor in the eyes of Boaz. We already know he fell fast in love with her right away. He wanted to know who she belonged to. But now we're starting to see that Ruth starts to see that she's found favor in the eyes of Boaz. He, he comes to her in a congenial way. He's a landowner. He doesn't have to do that. Amen. It's his field. He doesn't have to be nice to somebody who's gleaning there. But she's found grace. Remember, earlier in the story, first verse we talked about this morning, Ruth said, perhaps I'll find grace in the eyes of a land. It foreshadows this now whenever Boaz comes to Ruth and she's found grace. But even though she doesn't realize it yet, 
she's also found an answer to her desperate prayers. God's getting ready to do a miracle in her life. And what transpires over the next few verses is a condensed version of the events of that entire day. It begins with a set of instructions from Boaz to Ruth and Ruth's expression of gratitude to Boaz for his kindness. It then moves to a meal that they share together, perhaps at the noon hour of the day. And it ends with Ruth returning to Naomi with an abundance of barley. This morning, we're just going to focus on the instructions that Boaz gives to Ruth, the starting of that condensed narrative. The first thing he says to her is a directive. It's almost a command. Don't even think about going to another field to glean. Stay in my fields. In other words, when tomorrow comes and the day after the day after the day after that, and when you get ready to come to the fields and glean, make sure you're always in my field. Interestingly enough, both times that Boaz insists that Ruth remain in his fields, the expression in the, in the Hebrew is in the negative. Go not to glean in another field. Neither go hence, go from hence. Do not look, go to any of the feet. Do not feel, do not leave. It's almost as if Boaz is putting boundaries on Ruth, telling her what she can and cannot do. I mean, he doesn't even know her yet. He's already telling her what she can and cannot do. But that perspective reveals our unfavorable bias towards negative commands. We don't want anybody telling us what we can and cannot do. Something rises up and says, you ain't got no business telling me what to do. It's not your problem, it's mine. You don't direct me. But the thing here is, it's not that Boaz is demanding that she stay in his fields. He's extending his protection to her and his blessing. He's saying, if you'll stay in my field, I'm going to watch over you. If you just make sure every day that you end up in my field, I'm going to be there and I'm going to bless you. So many times we look at the things that the preacher or the Bible tells us not to do in a negative light. We, we look at them as if God is withholding some good thing from us, as if he's <coughs> keeping the better part from us. But that's not the case at all. Thou shalt not is an invitation to a blessing. Thou shalt not is an invitation to the goodness of God. It's not that God wants to keep you from doing something that you would enjoy. It's that God said, if you just stay in my field, I'm going to bless you there. If you just follow my ways, I'm going to be there with you. If you just turn your heart towards me and seek my face, don't go seeking your fulfillment somewhere else. Go go seeking to satisfy your soul somewhere else. But if you just follow me, if you just walk after me, if you just pursue me, if you just be in my field, I will bless you. It's not that Boaz doesn't want Ruth to glean in somebody else's field. It's that the only way he can bless her with extra is if she's in his field because he only controls his field. It's not that God's trying to keep you from some better thing. It's not that God's trying to keep you from doing what everybody else is doing. It's that the only way he can bless you is if you live according to his word. If you walk according to his laws, that's where the blessing is. It's in his field. 
So the negative commands from Boaz are not to hurt Ruth or hinder any enjoyment in her life. They're there to benefit her, to give great blessing to her, to cause her to be more successful in her effort to glean. She's going to glean far more in Boaz's field than she would ever glean in anybody else's field. The psalmist said in Psalm 1 and 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in due season. Uh, his leaf also shall not wither, and wherever he, whatever he does will prosper. Amen. The psalmist understood it. If you walk in the field of the Lord, if you follow after the counsel of the ungodly, if you seek the things of this world, you're going to be empty and destitute and broken. But if you'll follow after the things of God, if you'll delight in the law of God, you'll be like the tree that's planted by the rivers of water. Amen. That always has a source of sustenance and strength. That all, even in the driest times, even in the most barren season, even even in the middle of a drought, uh, it's the tree by the river that grows. Amen? Because the river runs. There's always water there. That's what the Lord said. If you'll follow me, if you'll pursue me, if you'll walk in my ways, you can be like that tree. When the famine comes, everything else is going to wither up and die, but that tree is going to grow. That tree is going to put on fruit. Amen? Secondly, Boaz tells Ruth she is to attach herself to his regular female servants, his maidens. Once again, there's a play on words here from the Hebrew that doesn't translate into the English. The verb here where Boaz tells her to fast by my maidens, to, to cling to those maidens, is the same word that was used earlier in the story of Ruth to describe how Ruth clings to Naomi. It's that, that same clinging. It's that same compassion. It's that same uh, whatever you do, stick to it. Persevere. Don't, don't get separated. Boaz explains what he means by that in the beginning of verse 10 or verse 9. Flip to the next verse. Yeah, verse 9. I, don't, I got 10 in my notes, but it's verse 9. Praise the Lord. He says, let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap. In other words, he says, keep your eyes on my ladies. Keep your eyes on my handmaidens. He, he, he said, wherever they go, that's where I want you to go. Wherever they are, that's where you need to be. When you get up in the morning uh, and you go to the fields to work, uh, go looking for these ladies uh, because you may not know what field is mine. Uh, you may not know what I own and I don't own, uh, but these ladies know what I own. Uh, and wherever they are, they're going to be gleaning in my field. Uh, they're going to be reaping in my field. Uh, so you watch for them. Uh, amen. You go where they are. You do what they're doing. Uh, you attach yourself to them. You understand God doesn't just require of you to do good, to follow his law, to walk in his ways. He enables you. He, he provides you with the resources to obey his commandments. He, he gives you what you need uh, to stand in the way of the faithful. Uh, amen. He gives you the provision. Uh, Ruth doesn't know what field Boaz owns. Ruth has, she got here by chance, remember? She got here by divine providence. God has brought her to this place. But Boaz is going to make sure tomorrow morning, 
morning. They're not going to be gleaning in this field. Uh, they're going to be over yonder on the back 40 of my other field. Uh, but you go looking for them ladies uh, because where you find them ladies, uh, you're going to be in my field. God makes sure, uh, amen, that he gives you the provision that you need uh, to be in a place of blessing. Uh, if you just walk with him and trust him, uh, he'll order your footsteps. Uh, he'll tell you the way you need to go. Uh, he'll say, this is the way. Walk in it. Amen. He guides us into his blessings if we'll just trust him and obey him. The third thing that Boaz tells Ruth is she's not to worry about harassment from the male workers because Boaz has already told them, you don't bother Ruth. You don't mess with that young lady. So Ruth has nothing to worry about. None of his servants are going to mistreat her. Though she may be a widow... And though she may be laboring alone in a field of strangers, a foreigner at that, the Lord of the harvest has extended his hand of protection over her. And he, she won't get this in any other field. She goes harvest somewhere else. She doesn't have this. But Boaz said, as long as you stay in my field, I told my young men, this is the limits. This is the boundaries. You don't mess with her. I come to tell you in this house on a Sunday morning, uh, amen, walking in the provision of God and the blessing of God puts you in the protection of God. Uh, that's not to say that you won't experience sickness uh, or disease or hard times uh, or tragedy in your life, uh, but that's to say that he draws a circle around you and he says, this is mine, uh, amen, and you're only going to come so far. Uh, you're only going to do so much. Uh, you remember when Satan went before the Lord and asked permission uh, to go and tempt Job, uh, and the Lord said, I'll put up a hedge about him. You can, you can do anything you want, but don't touch his body. Uh, later on, he would come back again, and the Lord would remove that hedge. And he'd say, you can touch his body, but don't take his life. I want you to understand, uh, when you're in the Lord's field, uh, he sets the boundaries uh, of what your enemy can do to you. But when you get out of his field, and you get away from that protection, you don't have that reassurance. Amen? The fourth thing that he tells Ruth, and this is the last thing, he tells Ruth that she may drink freely of the water that is provided for his regular field workers. This is very important. At the beginning of every day, the servants, before they would leave town, would go draw water from that sweet well in Bethlehem. You know the well that David said, oh, I long for a drink of Bethlehem's well. They would go and they'd draw water there. And they'd get enough water for a whole day's work. And they would carry that water to the field with them. So they had plenty to drink when they worked. And Boaz tells Ruth, if, if you get thirsty, anytime you need it, uh, you just come on over where my servants are. And you drink from the water that my young men have drawn. That's incredible. Because we're in a culture here where young men don't draw water for young lady. Amen. Young ladies draw water for young men. It doesn't go the other way. But he said, you come and you drink from the water that my my young men have drawn. You come and you let them serve you and you let them be under you and you let them be there to provide your need and your desire. Amen. That's significant also because the gleaners don't normally have access to the water that's reserved for the reapers. If you're a gleaner, you got to fend for yourself. Listen, you're not a part of the main team. You, you're, not, you're not one of the reapers. The landowner isn't obligated to provide for you. 
if you come to the field to glean, then you've got to provide your own water, and water is going to be your most immediate need. As long as you're working out in the hot sun and, and gleaning in the field, you're going to find yourself in a place where you've got to stop every now and then and drink something. If you don't, it's going to bode very well, for, very bad for you. Amen. It's not going to end well. And so what, what would happen is if, if she didn't have that supply of water, Ruth would have to stop working uh, every now and then and, and either make the trek back to the well to get a drink from the well or perhaps in the morning she's going to have to draw enough to drink all day and struggle with that burden as she goes to the field and carry that extra weight which is going to diminish her capacity to glean it's going to rob her of her strength it's going to rob her of her resources no matter whether she has to go to the well or she has to carry enough water for the whole day either way it's going to take away from what she can get from the field but Boaz promises Ruth if you stay in my field if you'll be where I'm blessing, if you'll be where I'm the Lord of the harvest, if you'll be where I'm watching over you, I'm going to give you plenty to drink. You'll never be thirsty in my field. As the story unfolds, we're going to note on several occasions how that Boaz is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ and how that Ruth is typical of the church. This is the first place in the story that we recognize that truth. In providing this water for Ruth, Boaz typifies Jesus Christ, who is the water of life for our souls. As Boaz promised Ruth water to quench her physical thirst, so Jesus promises all those who will come to him that he will satisfy their spiritual thirst. Here we see the contrast between the godly life and the life spent in pursuit of worldly things. If Ruth goes and gleans in another man's field, if she goes off on her own and does her own thing, if she goes to seek her satisfaction somewhere else, she's going to be thirsty with no way to quench that thirst. That's the way it always is. If, if you spend your time in the fields of this world pursuing worldly benefits and carnal things, uh, those things will always leave you thirsty. They'll always, you know, it, wealth is never enough. Fame and fortune is never enough. Amen. All the things that the world lays before you, glitter and glamour and possession and material things and, and pride and prestige and position, all those things are hollow and empty. They're never enough. It's the movie stars and the rich folks and those that are that are should be at the if we judge life by successes and material positions should be at the pinnacle of life that drink themselves to death that overdose on drugs that 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 kill themselves. It's hollow and it's empty. It leaves you with a thirst that cannot be quenched. But Jesus is saying, if you'll walk in the way of the Lord. You'll be refreshed. Your thirst will be quenched. That's the context in which Jesus stands up on the great day of the feast in John chapter 7 to verse 37. It says, if any man drink, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Would you stand with me? He's not just saying, I'm one source among many. He's not just saying, you know, uh, you, you, if you're thirsty... You know, you can come here to drink or you can go somewhere else. What he's saying is, if you'll come to me, you'll thirst no more. Think about it, folks. That's exactly what he told the woman at the well in Samaria. 
in John chapter 4 and verse 14. Whosoever drinketh this water that I shall give shall never thirst again. But the water I shall give shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I come to tell somebody in this place on a Sunday morning, the Lord is extending the invitation. Come glean in my fields. Come walk with me. You may be at the low point in your life. You may be broken and poor and destitute, a widow and a, and a stranger in a foreign land, but come to my field. Because in my field there's provision. In my field there's blessing. In my field there's protection. And in my field there's water to drink. Come and reap from my beautiful harvest. Come, thirsty soul, and be refreshed. Come, weary, and lay down your burdens. Come, those of you that are troubled, and let your heart be lifted up and encouraged. Drink from fountains of living water. Drink deep from a well that will forever satisfy your thirst. That's the benefit of working in the Lord's field. And I just can't help but feel so very strongly in this place this morning that God's reaching across this auditorium right now with an invitation. Come to my field. Come work for me. You may just be a lowly gleaner. That's going to change before the story's over with. You may be the low man on the totem pole, but that's not where you're going to stay. Come to my field. I want to lift you up. Come to my field. I'm going to bless you. You may be Ruth. You may be a widow and a foreigner and a stranger in a strange land, but you're not going to stay there. I'm about to elevate you. I'm about to exalt you. I'm about to lift you up to a place of honor. Amen. This isn't the end of your story. Come and glean in my field. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to find a place of prayer on a Sunday morning. Amen. The anointing of the Holy Ghost is in this place, very rich and real right now. He's calling somebody. This isn't the end of your story. This isn't where it all wraps up. This isn't the end of the matter. Come and glean in my field. My blessing is there. My protection is there. My provision is there. The streams of living water are flowing through this place this morning. Would you come and drink deeply? Would you let him satisfy the thirsting of your soul? Would you let him quench that desire deep inside? Would you let him be everything that you need him to be? In Jesus' name.